when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neelai Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Microsoft CTO Kevin Scott, who, as of just this week, also has the new title Executive Vice President of AI. As you can probably guess, Kevin oversees Microsoft's AI efforts, including the company's big partnership with OpenAI and ChatGPT. Kevin and I spoke ahead of his keynote talk at Microsoft Build, the company's annual developer conference, where he showed off the company's new AI assistant tools, what Microsoft calls Copilots. And Microsoft is big into Copilots. GitHub Copilot is already helping millions of developers write code. And now the company is adding Copilots to everything from Office to the Windows terminal. Basically, if there's a text box, Microsoft thinks AI can help you fill it out. And Microsoft has a long history of working on assistants like this. You might remember Clippy from the 90s. Well, AI Super Clippy is here. Kevin and I talked about what it means for a computer to be working alongside you like this, both in a really practical way, what can and can't it do, and on a much more philosophical level. Are we actually making it harder to use computers by essentially turning English into a programming language? And what does it mean for users to expect computers to just do as they're told, especially when our imaginations are often far ahead of reality? Kevin is super down for these kinds of conversations. He has been thinking and writing about AI for quite a while now. I actually last interviewed him a few years ago when he was promoting his book, Reprogramming the American Dream, which was all about how AI would change rural America. So this conversation is really down in the details, which is great. Of course, we also got into some classic decoder questions. I wanted to know how Kevin manages that big open AI partnership, why Microsoft decided to partner with a startup instead of building the AI tech internally, and where the two companies disagree. More importantly, I wanted to know how Microsoft and OpenAI resolve their differences inside this huge partnership and what Microsoft is choosing to build for itself instead of relying on OpenAI for. Kevin controls the entire GPU budget at Microsoft. I wanted to know how he decides to spend it. 
Two notes before we start, you're going to hear Kevin and I talk about Stuxnet, which is a very famous computer virus allegedly developed by United States and Israeli intelligence services. It targeted centrifuges used by the Iranian nuclear program. We also talked about what happened when Bing tried to get New York Times columnist Kevin Roos to leave his wife, which is a very different kind of malicious software interaction. Like I said, this episode has a little bit of everything. Okay, Kevin Scott, CTO and Executive Vice President of AI at Microsoft. Here we go. Kevin Scott, you are the Chief Technology Officer at Microsoft. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you so much, Neelai. You're also a, a podcast host. What's your podcast called? I am. I don't think I have nearly as many listeners as you guys, but I do a once a month uh, podcast called Behind the Tech, where I talk with people who are doing interesting things, sometimes behind the scenes in the technology industry. And we've been doing it for, I don't know, four or five years now. It's great to have people with other podcasts on the show because you were just like ready to go. You're like, here's all my... There's a little bit of a, a camera arms race happening on this episode of Decoder. If anyone sees the TikTok, so see Kevin looks great. I've still got my little my little Sony ZV1 situation. I'm very jealous. The Sony's of, are Sony's are great. Great <laughs> great cameras. I I'm very fond of it, but every time I uh, you got a you said you had a Canon EOS R. I'm like, yeah. I'm going shopping after this. Anyhow, let's start with the news. <laughs> we can talk cameras on another episode of Decoder. Yeah. Uh, it's Microsoft's Build Conference. It's the Developer Conference. The big announcement, the theme of this conference is basically we're going to put AI and LLMs and everything. Microsoft calls that idea copilots. Yep. There's a obviously GitHub already has a copilot, but there's a copilot in Windows Terminal now, which is hilarious in all kinds of ways. Yeah. There's a, a new copilot system in Edge. They're everywhere. Tell us what's going yeah. on. Well, so I, I think the the exciting thing and um, what I'll be talking about in my keynote talk is we built GitHub Copilot and the idea is like you have these amazing large foundation models uh, that you can have conversations with that can do cognitively complicated things. And we we wanted to imagine how we use this technology to assist people in sort of the cognitive work that they're doing. Uh, the first one we built was GitHub Copilot, which is a tool for helping people write code and to do their activities as a software developer. And very quickly, we realized that that was a pattern for a new type of software, that there wasn't going to be just GitHub Copilot, but there were going to be lots of copilots. So you can think of being Chat as a copilot, ChatGPT, as a copilot, the Windows Terminal copilot that you mentioned. Now, as we were looking at building all of these things ourselves, like they had a whole bunch of architectural similarities, a whole bunch of user interface patterns that were similar. And the theme of the the talk that I'm giving at Build is all about what does the architecture of a copilot look like? Uh, because we believe that like many, 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 many developers are going to build lots of copilots. Because like the thing that makes them special is um, when you know something about your customer or you know something about uh, deeply about a problem, like you're going to be the best person to go build a copilot to help assist someone with that flavor of work. And like there's just no way that any one company is going to imagine what all of those are. Uh, and so this year's build is about the tools that we can put into the hands of everybody to help them build their own copilots. That's a big thesis about how computers will work in the future, yeah. right? That the way we're going to interact with computers involves a lot of natural language prompting. I'm just going to walk up to the computer and say, I want this, and the computer will give it back to me. 
and the software that sits in between the input and the output there, developers will build. And you can see how every developer will say, okay, I need to parse natural language input and then figure out how to give the user whatever they wanted. And sometimes that means generating some content for them. That's a, a big idea. It is also kind of a narrow idea, right? It, 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 there's, it's a limitation on what you might allow AI to do instead of just go do it yourself. It's a co-pilot. It's, it's built into the name. It very much implies that I'm still the pilot. Yeah. Do you see that limitation? Is that something you're baking in as a, as a guardrail, as a moral guideline? Where's that coming from? Well, I, I don't... So part of it is pragmatic. If you look at these models, they are truly amazing. And just the progress that we've made in the past year is astonishing. Like, we, we've gotten quicker to some places than I thought we were going to get. But still, once you try, and like we've just seen this ourselves, as we've tried to apply these models to applications that we have, you, you have a bunch of aligning and a bunch of steering that you have to do to get them to actually do a rich, complicated set of tasks. And so part of what we're doing is just the pragmatic thing that if you want to be able to harness the power of these things right now and get them to do useful things, like you're going to have to be able to steer them. You will have to think about prompt engineering and meta prompts and retrieval augmented generation and like this whole new bag of techniques that have emerged around this new type of software development. Uh, and you'll have to think about user interfaces differently than you were before. I mean, like one of the really wild things that's changing about user interfaces is uh, for my entire career, as a software developer, you have had to, as a programmer, imagine like everything that you want your code to do and every way that you are going to very explicitly permit the user to accomplish that task, which usually means, you know, sort of laying out a bunch of graphical user interface elements and binding code to them. And like these applications, like you don't have to do as much of that uh, because... <laughs> You know, the, the user is expressing a thing that they want to accomplish in a very natural way. And sometimes it's a multi-turn conversation. And so, like, what it means to build a user experience for these things is different. It doesn't mean that you have to, that, that you're off the hook and you don't have to think about it at all. Uh, but, like, you do have to think about it differently. And, and so, in that sense, like, it's a very big idea because for the past 180 years since... Uh, Ada Lovelace wrote her first program, the way that human beings have gotten computing devices to do things for them is you either have to be a skilled programmer who knows how to you know, deal with all the complexity of the computing device and like you tell it what to do, or you have to hope that uh, one of these skilled programmers have anticipated your needs and written a piece of software that you can run. And like that is changing now in a pretty dramatic way. So I think that's a big idea. And it doesn't, doesn't necessarily constrain what the AI may do in the future. Like as the models become more capable, like the way that we architecturally think these co-pilots, uh, you may have to do less explicit work to align them and steer them to a task. Like they may be able to do more and more of this naturally. And like that is the progression that we've seen over the past handful of years. Like every time we turn the crank on the big foundation models, they are more capable of doing things with less of this coaxing. But you're probably going to need a little bit of coaxing for a while, like especially uh, like with plugins, right, where, you know, the models can do reasoning to, to a certain approximation of reasoning. But like if you want them to actuate something, to do something in the world, like they have to be able to invoke an API or like 
look up a piece of data or whatnot. And that's what plugins are for. Like they are explicit ways to give a co-pilot or an AI system in general the ability to do a thing that the model can't do just because it's a big reasoning engine. So that that's a really interesting part of the guardrails, right? You you give the models enough APIs and I say, I would love to book a train ticket to Paris. And the model goes out and it discovers that all the train tickets are sold out and it creates some calamity in the world to make sure there's a train ticket <laughs> for me to buy. Like we have seen this play out with some of these models. Like people have run the simulations and gotten there with some of the existing models. How do you put the guardrails in place for that? Because a, a GitHub copilot is like helping you write code and you're yeah. very much in control. A Microsoft Edge copilot that can actually take actions on the web through APIs is a very different beast with a very different set of capabilities. Yeah, for, for sure. We've been thinking about the security model and the safety model for these uh, plugins very carefully. So like the first plugins that will get deployed will be things that we've developed ourselves and that we've co-developed with partners in a very careful way so you know exactly uh, what they can do, like how data is flowing, like how authentication and security works, what their guardrails are when they get invoked. And, and like you also have to think about alignment in the models in general so that, uh, you know, e e you don't get these weird emergent things that could potentially happen when you've got thousands of plugins and like the model is trying to actuate them in, you know, ways that are hard to predict because it's just sort of a complicated collection of things. Um, and so I think we will be very, very careful as we roll these things out. Now, I, I think you're likely in the short term to have scenarios where it's less the, you know, the model is doing something like weird and sinister to like, you know, make sure that you've got space on a train by like creating a bad situation and more of, you know, like you've got, it, it's being a vector for malware, for instance. Uh, mm -hmm. Somebody writes a malicious plug-in that advertises itself as doing one thing but does another. I think that we just know human beings do in general. And there it's like the human beings, not the AI. It's like a yeah. human trying to exploit something, a vulnerability in the AI to like do something that they Have you done the, like the red team exercise of what happens yeah. when, you know, the government tries to do a Stuxnet? We have done many, many, many red team exercises. I, I don't think we've done like a like exactly a Stuxnet exercise. Like we've done a whole bunch of things, and like red teams are awesome because they are like infinitely paranoid. And uh, but you know, let me just like put it in front of you. If I'm yeah, the sure. director of the CIA and I'm like, look, there's a there's an enrichment facility in Iran that I need to shut down. Go take over Windows 3.1 PCs until you you turn off the centrifuges. Is that a reasonable command to give a computer? Well, I, I, you know, that is a hard, hard question for me to to answer. Like, it doesn't sound on the surface like a reasonable command, and it's certainly not a thing that the systems can do right now. Like, you, you can't have. There's no Stuxnet plugin for, for <laughs> right. GitHub. Okay, fair uh, enough. I'm like, maybe, the, but you can see how you get there, right? You you get. And not to make this like too sci-fi or even too cynical, but you can see how I'm going to make the computer write code for me. And as a as a user, I might not even have the ability to understand what the computer is producing. Yeah, like a, a much I, I, different version of this is I say, hey, I've got a crush on somebody who speaks Italian, write a poem for them in Italian. Right. And it turns out the poem is like deeply insult. Like 
there's just a lot of that, right? Feedback loop going on. Yeah. And then there's what will you not allow the computer to do? And write me a piece of malicious software that will shut down a centrifuge. Seems like something Microsoft should just say to plugin developers, you are not allowed to do this. Well, yeah, and if you try to issue that command right now into GitHub Copilot or you try to get, uh, like, Bing Chat to do it. Here, let me... Yeah, we're going to try it right gonna, now. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to go <laughs> type it in right now to make sure I'm not uh, not telling you. Uh, let, let us see what what it says live. This is I've never had anyone get arrested live on the air on Decoder, <laughs> and I'm excited for it to be this TTO of Microsoft. Yeah, I'm, I'm not excited uh, for it to be me <laughs> or, or, or anyone of your guests, uh, for that matter. But it's not a hit podcast until at least one person gets arrested, is what I'm told. <laughs> I am sorry, but I cannot write such code. It is unethical and dangerous <laughs> to attempt to take over a uranium enrichment facility. So, is that know, keyword again, based, or are you doing natural no, no, language no, no. Like processing? There, there's something far more complicated going on yeah. there. Now, and, and moreover, for things like this, the, what the red team would have done is try a million different things to bypass the safety features of the system that are preventing it from writing these things. The intention of the systems is like you want them sort of aligned to safe uses and like hacking, uh, like whether it's at the direction of a government or hacking because it's a, you know, some mafia type person that's trying to do a financial scam. Like it's, it's just like not a permissible activity for the systems right now. And, you know, that that's not to say that someone couldn't go take an open source system uh, that someone's developing that doesn't have all of the safety, uh, you know, features built in and do something similar. But like for the systems that we're building that have safeguards built in, like we we try very hard not to not to allow things like what you're suggesting. In terms of what you would allow, right, it, it, Microsoft has a long history here of trying to make computers work in this way, in particular with natural language in particular, the general notion of co-pilots, there's a part of this where we're building super clippy, right? Where it says, hey, I, I can see you're using Excel. Uh, can, do you want me to just write the macros for you? There's a user interface history there. Yep. You know, where ultimately clippy was deprecated because it was just getting in people's way. And then there's like the new class of users, the new set of expectations, there's a part of me that says we're actually kind of in an uncanny valley here where people's expectations of what a co-pilot can do in something like Excel are going to vastly outstrip what they can actually do in this moment. Yeah. Are you thinking about that calibration? Yeah, for sure. So I was, uh, you know, and, and it's a really interesting thing. And I think it's part of both the infrastructure parts of co-pilots as well as how you're thinking about building user interfaces. So I did a review with a Microsoft research team yesterday that is uh, working on this, like explicitly for Excel, this uh, feature called co-auditing, where the explicit purpose is to make sure that you're making transparent exactly what the model is trying to do is it's writing formulas and, you know, doing a whole bunch of numeric analysis inside of a spreadsheet uh, so that it's it's asking and sort of setting the expectation that the user should be understanding like what is going on so that uh, like it really is an assistive thing. Uh, like the same way that if, you know, your colleague gave you something like you should, uh, you know, just double check their work. It's just you know, yeah. best practice. And, and so like I think that is like a really important part. And it's not 
trivial, right? You know, if it were like I'm I'm a software developer, but if somebody gave me a chunk of objective camel code uh, right now, I haven't written objective camel in 25 years. And so like I I'm rusty enough where you know, like you shouldn't expect that I would be able to look at that code and determine whether or not it's correct. Uh, and so part of what the user interface for these systems has to do is depending on the context, and sometimes the context will be specific and sometimes they will be general. And the problem is much harder in general systems. But you have to like make a reasonable effort to make sure that when you're asking the user to, you know, monitor the outputs of what the AI is doing that you're presenting it to them in a way where they can reasonably do that checking. And, and so, you know, like in, in GitHub Copilot, right, like if you're asking it to write Python code, it's presumably because you're a Python developer. And so, like, you can look at what it returns and sort of, you know, the same way that you would do a code review and say, okay, well, this looks right. And, you know, and then I'm going to go deploy it and it's got tests and I've, I've got a bunch of mechanism to figure out whether or not it's right when something like Bing Chat, like what we've increasingly been trying to do is to like have cited references uh, in the in the output so that you can go click through when it's asserting something to see like, where did you get that from? And, you know, and even then it's not perfect, but like I think these user interface things that we're doing with the systems is really important that you have that transparency. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get to the decoder questions. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. 
We're back with Kevin Scott. So uh, one more on, on this line, and then I do really want to ask about the structure of your partnership with OpenAI, um, decoder stuff. You've got a training data feedback loop problem coming. Not tomorrow, maybe not in the next year or so, but right now these models are trained off a bunch of stuff that people have put on the web, that people have put into GitHub, that people have put everywhere. Yep. The volume of output from these systems, from these co-pilots, is voluminous, right? It's going to quickly dwarf the amount of human output that is on the internet. Yep. And then you're going to train against that. And that feels like a feedback loop that will lead to weird outcomes yeah. if not controlled for. How do you yeah. think about that? So, look, we, we've had some pretty good techniques for a while now to assess the quality of data that we're feeding into these systems so that you're not, uh, you know, training, training things on low-quality data. I, I think many of those techniques will work here and, like, might even be easier to apply. Uh, and then another thing that I, I think we will be doing, like I think real soon, either by convention of all of the people in tech or because it becomes a regulatory requirement, like you're going to have to figure out some way or another to mark that a piece of content is AI generated. We, we're going to you know, announce some stuff at build a, around this like we've for three years now I've been working on uh, like a media provenance uh, system that lets you put a an invisible cryptographic watermark and manifest into uh, audio and visual content uh, so that when you get this content like you can have a piece of software decrypt the manifest and 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 the manifest says like this is where I came from um, yeah. And, like, it's sort of useful for disinformation uh, detection in general. Like, you, you can sort of say as a user, like, I only want to, like, consume content whose provenance I understand. Like, you could say, I don't want to consume content that is AI-generated. Uh, and, like, if you are building a system that is ingesting this content to train, like, you can, you can look at the manifest and say, like, the, this is synthetic content, like, probably shouldn't be in the training data. So, I... Just saw Sundar Pichai at Google's developer conference. Yep. They've got the same idea. Yep. I'll make the same threat to you. If you want to come back and talk about metadata for an hour, I will do it at the drop of a hat. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would actually, I think it's a really important thing. And I think, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're a bunch of long-term problems and short-term problems with AI. They're hard problems. They're easy problems. Like the provenance one seems like a thing that we ought to be able to go solve. Yeah. Uh, and I we think- gotta, Here's what we're going to do. We're going to rent a theater. We're going to sell drinks and we're going to sit and drink with like, I'm, I guarantee you, it'll be like an audience of thousands of people who want to drink through a metadata conversation. That's just what I know. That's awesome. All uh, right. You let's and do I, it. I'll put a pin in that one. Let's uh, do it. We'll invite Sundar. Like, it'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I, I'm, I promise you there's a bigger audience for this uh, conversation than anyone thinks, including, including my producers. Yeah. But here's my question. And, and the, the they, no, but Google's got one. Adobe's got one, right? They've got a content authenticity initiative. Yeah. We're, we're quickly hitting that XKCD comic of like, there's four competing standards. Yeah. Let's launch a new one. Are you well, having well, those conversations? Are you saying a regulator has to do this? Will the industry no, do no, it no. together? We, we are absolutely having these conversations. So the the Adobe thing is uh, like in partnership with us. Uh, so like we've been chatting with them and the BBC and the New York Times. And mm -hmm. like there's a coalition that the Microsoft uh, media provenance team has been building since 2021. But like this, this is a thing where... 
I, I would be perfectly happy if we decided that someone else's standard is the better way to solve this problem to just snap to that. Uh, like this is not a place where, you know, you need competition to like we, we should yeah. find a good enough solution and all agree that like here's the thing and this is what we're all going to go do. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about structure a little bit before you got to go. Uh, we've talked about a big think ideas here. I mean, here's how we're going to use it. Here's what the future of computing might look like. But there's actual products you launched uh, at Build. A lot of them were built with OpenAI, right? This is a big yeah. partnership with a company that's obviously set off what, what you might call a platform shift. You were one of the people that pushed to partner with OpenAI. Why partner? What, what were the pros and cons of we got to go work with this company versus I'm the CTO of Microsoft. I've been talking about AI for years. We should build this ourselves. Yeah, and and it, it's a super good question because there were lots of opinions uh, back when we were beginning these conversations about what we ought to do. And the guiding principle that we had is Microsoft is a platform company. We need to make sure that the platform that we're building is going to meet the needs of the highest ambition folks in AI uh, who are doing things at the very highest level and have the highest expectations. Uh, and it, it will be better to have a partner who is outside of Microsoft uh, and who can't be, you know, influenced by the sets of things that happen inside of big companies to, you know, when they're telling us, that, you know, this is good enough or this isn't. Mm -hmm. And so, like, when we formed the initial partnership with OpenAI, like, if it had done nothing more than help us push on how we're building AI supercomputers, uh, like, help us, uh, like, get more scale onto that AI supercomputing platform that we were also using for training our own models, like, it would have been a, a big success for us. And it just turned out that we were sort of aligned in this platform vision. Like we saw these models uh, like on this trajectory where you were going to be able to train one thing and use it for lots and lots of different things, which is a very different way of doing machine learning than what, uh, you know, we've had for the past couple of decades. And like they had a platform vision for what they were doing. Like, you know, we're a platform company and like we just figured out a way to structure a partnership where like we could go build that platform together. What kinds of things do you disagree about with OpenAI? You know, it's really interesting. Uh, it changes over time. So I honestly, like I've had relatively few disagreements, uh, like me personally with Sam, but like, you know, there's sort of ideological disagreements that our teams have had uh, with the overall approach. Uh, so like if you're a machine learning expert, like this idea of taking a dependency on a foundation model uh, versus training your own thing, you know, start to finish is like a pretty big shift in the way that you're doing things. And I'm guessing any professional who like loves craft and loves loves their tools uh, is ornery in sort of the same way. <laughs> uh, you know, like God forbid yeah. that some upstart comes in and tells you how you're going to go do journalism and what, you know, That's like not, not just what the tools are, but like, you know, how <laughs> you're going to go use them. Uh, and so it's a little bit like that with like the deep machine learning experts. And so like we've had disagreements there. And then, you know, there were a whole bunch of people who I think until relatively recently didn't believe that the approach was going to get where we've gotten. Like they were like, oh, well, there must be something else. Like you're going to have to have schemas, symbolic reasoning, and uh, like some richer notion of semantics and what you can get from, uh, you know, from a deep neural network or like a, a transformer. And I, I think 
that's less of a disagreement now than it was before. Um, and I think we're, you know, we're still open to the idea that there, there, mu- there must be something else, right? Like we've got a proof point uh, here that there is something else. But I, I think everybody's, you know, increasingly believing that these things are powerful and like they're likely to get more powerful. What's the split in what you rely on OpenAI to do and what you want your teams at Microsoft to do? Well, I mean, they they are developing, just from a science perspective, a bunch of the core AI technology that we are uh, that we're dependent on right now. I mean, you can sort of see it in like all these announcements that we're making. Yep. Like they're you know they have an OpenAI model uh, in there somewhere, and in many cases, like they're accompanied by a whole bunch of other things. It's rarely just one model. So like you you sort of have a whole portfolio of things that you use to make a full application. And so like we build a bunch of those things ourselves. Like we, we obviously are the ones who are the, um, like we partner closely defining what the infrastructure ought to look like, but like we're the ones who have to go out and build it and ramp everything up to scale. And then we do a whole bunch of work together on uh implementation and deployment so like one of the interesting things that we do is we have this thing called the deployment safety board that we run together and so like everything that launches that has uh an open ai model in it either that they're doing or that we're doing like we have a group of of experts uh at open ai and at microsoft that meet to review all of the red team analysis and like the report that the experts have made and like we decide uh whether or not we're going to proceed with the deployment yeah things we do you know tend to be more infrastructure things they do tend to be more the science uh you know science of the model side of things uh they've got products we've got products uh and then like we've got like this implementation deployment stuff that like we just super deeply collaborate on i have to ask you about this because in many ways this is the most controversial org chart comment in world history and it's a, it's a show about org charts right? it's bait uh, yeah. elon musk very publicly claims that Microsoft controls OpenAI, and he's issued the series of claims about your rights over the training weights and your ability to control this company. Yeah. Is that true? What's he getting wrong yeah. there? We don't control OpenAI. Like, they're a partner. I, I also don't control my uh, machine learning engineers who uh, work inside of Microsoft Research. Like, this notion, we are aligned on a thing that we're trying to accomplish together. And, like, we've got a set of agreements that help us uh, help us go do those things. But, like, we, we certainly don't control them, like, in any traditional sense. And, like, you know, certainly not in spirit. And nor, nor do I want to. Like, so what I said in the beginning... Um, is like we need someone that is outside of the Microsoft remit to be pushing on us. Otherwise, we're going to get things wrong about our ambition. Like it's very easy as a big tech company to be insular and just sort of see yeah. like, this is what I'm doing. Like this is my stuff. This is the way I've been. I mean, like Microsoft's an old company too. Like we're almost five decades old at this point. You know, just having having an independent partner that's out there you know with their own ambition their own thing that they're trying to do where we've got tight alignment but like independence like is really crucial to us having a successful partnership how have you structured the ai division now right i mean this is your team this is the thing you were building on you're talking about having this outside group that you're partnered with that's pushing on you that is obviously making its own inroads into the market this is a show about org charts how is your team structured now 
So we have a whole bunch of people who work on AI inside of the company. So uh, inside of, uh, so Scott Guthrie is my peer who runs uh, runs this group called Cloud and AI. So there's um, inside of his group, there's a, a group called AI Platform. And AI Platform is responsible for all of the infrastructure that basically is the both third party and increasingly the first party uh, AI platform for the company. There's a big AI group in Bing that's been there forever and that is like one of the best AI groups in the company. There's a AI group in the experiences and devices division of the company that uh, is responsible for Office and Windows and a whole bunch of other stuff uh, that is uh, like application focused. So like they look at Here's the you know, best capability that uh, like AI provides. Like, how do we put that into our products? We have uh, like a very large number of AI researchers in Microsoft Research, which all reports uh, up to me. And then, uh, like, I coordinate all of this activity across the breadth of the company. They each report up into you know like one of my peers, yeah. but you know, like I, I do things like I I own the GPU budgets for the whole company. Uh, so, uh, which which. Is, That's the terrible. hardest flex I've ever heard on this show. Well, it, no, no, no. It's not a flex. It's a terrible job. Uh, like, you, <laughs> you do not want to be in charge of all the GPUs, uh, like, in a world of AI. And it's been miserable for five years now. You haven't uh, asked an AI in Excel to manage the GPU budgets for you? This seems I, like the perfect task. I wish. Uh, it, and it's not the GPU budget. It's like the people who are like, hey, I don't have enough GPUs. Uh, like, I'm mad at you. Uh, like, that's the, <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is the decoder question. I always ask everybody how they make decisions. And usually it's like pretty open-ended. But you, you got to figure out how to spend the GPU budgets. How do you make decisions? How do you make that decision? Well, the the way that I make decisions about capital allocation and like how to you know decide like which projects you're going to fund with uh, with headcount is it's not quite the seventy twenty ten concept that uh, Sergey came up with at Google a million years ago, but it's sort of we push most of our investments into things where we have very good quantifiable evidence that a thing is going to benefit from more investment and that will create a business impact that like gives us you know return on invested capital and so like that tends to be the biggest part of your portfolio so like you know 85 90% of like how we invest are on like those things where we just sort of have evidence that something is working uh, and that it will benefit from more investment and then you've got this sort of 15% that you're investing that is like trying to like plant enough seeds where you are, you've got maybe your smartest people uh, trying to do things that are counterintuitive or non-obvious or uh, like outright contrarian and like having them do it in disciplined ways where like they're working towards proof points of things like, you know, not doing things because, oh, like you look smart from doing them, but like, I've done something that shows that like we're right on the, you know, the beginning part of something that's going to inflect up and be like super interesting if we put a little more investment behind it. 
And that that's sort of the way that we think about uh, like doing things in general. And at Microsoft scale, like the 15% is a lot. Like there's a lot of people yeah. that are, you know, making these little seed investments all over the place. And it's even, you know, the way that we think about partnering with folks. It's like, I know people probably thought that the OpenAI investment was big, like inside of the, you know, like Microsoft's revenue streams and like the size of the company. Like the first version of the investment was like, not a hugely financially risky thing. It was like one of those seeds where it's like, all right, this looks like it's going to work. Let's go put some resources behind it and like see if we can get it to the next uh, the next step. And so like that that is how we make uh, we make these decisions. For something like a copilot, right? Here's a, a new paradigm for operating computers. We want to roll it out across everything from Windows Terminal to Excel to to GitHub. You know, the spread of Microsoft structure is actually really fascinating. Yeah, there's. Office, which is inside of Microsoft. There's Azure, which, uh, you know, Sasha Nell used to run Azure. I'm sure he cares about that, like, at a yep. one-to-one level. And then there's GitHub, which has its own CEO, and it's, like, kind of out there. Yep. Th- then there's something and like... LinkedIn. And LinkedIn, right? It has its own CEO. It's kind of out there. Uh, and they're doing AI stuff. But there's just, like, a world... There's a spectrum of how connected Microsoft's divisions are to the central core of Microsoft. That's another long episode of Decoder, I'm sure. But when you're building something like Copilot using a centralized GPU budget, how do you bring all those teams together and say, hey, this is the way we're going to do it. These are the philosophical principles of what we think these products should be, and these are the guardrails that we're imposing with our deployment board. Yeah, it it has actually gotten a lot easier over the past handful of years, mostly because we've been practicing this for a while. So one of the things that we did about a year before we uh, did the OpenAI deal is uh, I started this central review inside of the company is like a meeting series called AI 365 that like ran for five years. Like we just refactored them recently. And like AI 365 had a handful of goals. Uh, So goal number one was get everybody in the company who was doing AI in a significant way, no matter where they sat, whether they were in LinkedIn or uh, like we started AI 365, I think before we had even acquired GitHub. But as soon as, uh, you know, GitHub was there, like, you know, we sort of said, like, bring your machine learning people to this. And it was a way for all of those people to sort of see what everyone else was doing uh, and to get a sense for like what the difference was between high ambition AI and average ambition AI. Um, And just slowly over time with Satya pushing, with me pushing, with peers pushing, uh, like we got to a point where like everybody had a you know, a point of view about where AI was heading uh, and about what a good level of ambition looked like. Um, It took a little bit longer to get people to agree on like, hey, I'm willing to take a dependency on like some central piece of infrastructure because engineers always want to go build their own thing from scratch. Um, (laughs) And then there's some stuff that's non-negotiable. It's like we have a responsible AI process, like we have uh, like that is going to run one way for the whole company and like you don't get to opt out of it. You set up that process at the beginning. It's been going. It seems like you're launching lots of products. You're in, in that process. But obviously the external stressor of, oh boy, suddenly everyone wants to use chat GPT. Yeah. Oh boy, suddenly you're in competition with Google, which is firing off products left and right now. Yeah. How has that stressed that process? How does that stress that structure? Well, I, th- I think it's it's actually been super good that we have five years of practice running the process yeah. because otherwise, like I think everything would be you know really truly on fuego. Um, you know, the, <laughs> the, the good the good thing about where we are right now is at least like we know 
we know what we believe about the technology. We know what we believe about uh, ambition levels for what we can do with it. Uh, like we know how to solve some of the hardest problems. What we don't have is like a bunch of weird divisional competition. Like you don't have, you know, like this research group and that research group, you know, with billions of dollars worth of, you know, GPE yeah. resources, like doing exactly the same thing. And like you don't even have you know, like product divisions who are off like, all right, well, I'm just going to go build my own thing because like, I don't want to take a dependency on the central thing or, and like the central thing, like, oh, I'm running a research project. I don't care about uh, how this stuff is ever going to get deployed. So like we, we have real, a real point of view about what we're doing. And, and again, it's sort of a pragmatic point of view because this stuff is crazy complicated and expensive and like has real risks associated with it. And so like you just need to do it in a very coordinated way. You could read that comment as a direct description of 90s Microsoft, for example, 2000s Microsoft. You could also read it as a description of Google, which you used to work at, right? In many ways, Google yeah, it's, been, has, it's been a long time since I worked at Google, though. I, I don't know what they're like inside now. Do you, but do you think it can work the other way, where you ha, where you have lots of I don't know, startups competing in a marketplace with redundancy? Like a big criticism of like AI regulation, for example, is okay. Sam Altman's going to go in front of Congress. Uh, that was a very chummy hearing. It was very friendly, and he said, "Please regulate us." And Congress said, "No one ever asks us to regulate them." And then you'll build some regulations that favor big companies with huge amounts of funding, big partnerships with Microsoft. And you actually maybe on the plus side, you might need to do that because the stuff is so costly. You got to pay for so many GPUs and high-end machine learning experts. On the flip side, if you had an ecosystem of smaller companies all competing, you might get a richer set of experiences or products yeah. or a different approach to safety. Where's the balance there? Yeah, I think I think we should have both. And like, I don't think there's an a priori thing that says one precludes the other. And I, I think a lot of people actually do believe this, like you, uh, like that Google memo that was circulating around, you know, it's like, yeah, oh my God, no open source is doing well, like we can't do what we're, and so like, I, I don't subscribe to that theory at all, uh, nor, nor do I subscribe to the theory that, you know, j like just because we're building a big platform uh, that like the open source stuff doesn't matter. Like, uh, obviously the open source community is doing crazy interesting things right now. I, I think there is a pragmatic thing for entrepreneurs, which is like, what tool do you want to use to go build your product to 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 get yourself to market quick? Because I, I think a lot of, uh, and like I've done startups and I, sp I spent most of my life working at small things that were trying to become small, uh, large things. The, the mistake that a lot of people make when they are in this entrepreneurial mode is like they get infatuated with the infrastructure and like forget that they really have to build a product that somebody wants. And like yeah. what what is just super, super clear is these models are not products like at all. Like they're not. They, they are infrastructure. They are, you know, building blocks that you use to make products, but they are not products themselves. You know, for some of these big models, like I do think that what you're building as a platform, sort of like an operating system or a compiler or, a, uh, you know, a smartphone or whatnot. And so the question is, like, if you want to write a smartphone app, do you think that you have to build the capacitive touchscreens and the phones <laughs> and the batteries and, the, like, write the mobile operating system from scratch? Or do you just, like, take the dependency on the platform provider, like, write your app and, like, go do what, uh, 
go 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 serve a customer need or do you really have to build a whole platform for yourself in order to just get to the product we have to take a quick break we'll be right back Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, it's Tom Warren, Senior Editor at The Verge here. Microsoft is in an era-defining moment. It's betting on AI as the future of work, its Xbox business is going through transformational changes, and the Mac versus PC war is about to be back on. So, I'm launching a newsletter called Notepad. It'll be your inside guide to all those changes and beyond. From details on the next Xbox, to that one time every Microsoft employee named Michael appeared on a mysterious email list. Whatever is happening at Microsoft, you'll be able to read about it first in Notepad every Thursday. Go subscribe now at theverge.com forward slash notepad. We're back with Microsoft CTO and EVP of AI, Kevin Scott. Um, so let's end with, with two kind of big questions. One, we've talked a lot about models and data and what they're able to do. There's a big fight online. I would say there's a legal fight. There's like a copyright fight about training data. There's a moral fight about whether artists and writers should be looped into training data. There's a writer strike in Hollywood that has some element of AI concern laced into it. At some point, the co-pilots, the generative AIs are going to be able to just fire off a poem that is reasonably good. I would say right now that they're not really able to do that. Like I can spot AI writing kind of a mile away right now, but at some point it's going to get better. Do you think that there's a, a turn where Microsoft or OpenAI or Google or whoever has to start compensating the the people who make the stories that go into the models? Maybe. I I, I don't know. Uh, and like the, the thing that I can say is like I do believe that people who are doing creative work ought to be like well compensated for the work that they're doing. I, I don't know whether we will get to quite the point that you are talking about like the the mm-hmm. thing that the thing that seems to be true about human beings is like we like to consume the things that we produce 
we could right now have, you know, instead of the Queen's Gambit on Netflix, we could have the Machine's Gambit and like have a whole Netflix show about computers that play each other, all of which are like better than the very best human player. And nobody wants to watch that because <laughs> uh, like even though they're, you know, doing this superhuman thing, who cares? Uh, like we, we, we like, you know, that drama between, uh, between human beings. You know, when it comes to consuming creative output you know, like part of the reason you do it is to have a connection with some other human being. So again, this is why I like, I'm really more excited about this vision of AI that's about these co-pilots where like I would prefer to build things that help empower those creative people to do things that they can't even imagine maybe doing right now uh, rather than this world where like, all right, well, we don't need any more creators because the robots are too good. Like, I just, I don't think that's what we want. And I don't think, as a consequence, because it's not what we want, it's not likely not going to happen. How do you, from your role as, you know, CTO, helping to design and architect and think broadly about the systems, how do you build that into future development? Hey, we should not totally wipe out entire floors of, of writers in some way. Coders. Well, I, you know, I, I think it starts with uh, actually thinking about what it is you want your platform to do. Um, I mean, I wrote a book about this a few years ago. and The last time we talked, it was about yeah. that book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so when you're building a platform, you get to decide, uh, like, what you want to encourage in the platform. And the thing that we want to encourage in the platform is we want to make it really easy to, for people to build assistive tools. You know, moreover, like, you know, one of the really interesting things is like it, it's good to have a platform like this that is not open in the sense that like hey you can go grab the model weights and you know modify them however you want but like it's pretty easy to like go get a developer key and start making api calls uh into one of these models um, and when you can get that to scale, like what happens is the unit economics of making those API calls gets pretty cheap. And then you can start thinking about doing all sorts of things that just economically wouldn't be feasible any other way. Like, I don't know whether you've uh, watched Sal Khan's uh, TED talk yet, but it's sort of really amazing. Like the the thing that he's been attacking at the Khan Academy for a while is this uh, two sigmas problem, which is this idea that uh, children controlling for everything else who have access to high quality individualized instruction just perform better and achieve more than children who don't. If you believe that data, which seems to be pretty clear, you you can formulate a, a vision or a goal that says, like, I think every child and every learner on the planet deserves to have access to high quality individualized instruction at no cost to them. And like, I think we can all agree, like that's a, that seems like a really reasonable and good, uh, good goal. But when you think about the economics of doing that without something like AI, like it gets really dodgy. And so if you have a platform like this, where the unit economics of it are getting exponentially better over time, uh, then you can start thinking about taking on these really super tough challenges like that that may not be solvable any other way. And like that's kind of the thing that defines what a good platform is. Like things don't deserve to become ubiquitous unless they can do things like that for the world. 
So I've kept this conversation pretty narrow on the products that exist today, or maybe a tick into the future. Personally, I find a lot of AI conversations frustrating because you, you spiral out of the capabilities that are in front of you. And the capabilities that are in front of us right now are mind-blowing. So I've, I've tried to stay inside of what I see now and what I see coming and just in the next turn. That's how I'm going to end by spiraling out into crazy. Uh, I know lots of AI researchers who think, okay, we just took a big step towards AGI, towards artificial general intelligence. The last time you and I spoke about your book in 2020, you said, I don't know, that's not, that's not five years away. That's not 10 years away. I know people now who are like, it's five years away. Yeah. Where do you think we are? No, I still don't know whether it's five years away. The things that have happened over the past year even, it forces you to think about what it is you mean when you say AGI. And I think it's really interesting that people mean different things when they say it. And like we don't have a really good definition for what it is. So I really believe that it's a good thing to have systems that are more capable over time of doing like more complicated cognitive tasks where you're sort of going from, you know, things like, hey, tell me what the sentiment of this sentence is to like, hey, um, you know, like I want you to write a, you know, a essay for me about um, the Habsburg Empress Maria Theresa and her impact on uh, feminism. I actually uh, like did that <laughs> a few months ago. It was, was that actually, any good? Yeah, this is not bad. Um, not not bad. My wife's a historian. Like she like had a few little uh, issues with it, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know it was sort of like a you know B minus uh, eighth grade essay. Yeah. Um, and you know, like I think in the future, like you will get to things where you know you can have systems that do more complicated tasks that require multiple steps and, uh, you know, accessing information in a bunch of different repositories. And and I think all of that's useful. And, like, when that converges to something where you look at it and say, yep, that's AGI, like, who knows? Um, like, is that five years? Is it, like, it, it, it entirely depends on what your definition of AGI is. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, like, th this idea that some people have about like oh we're like accidentally going to get like singularity like strange weird super intelligence things uh like we won't get it on accident like i'm i'm <laughs> like I, I i know what it looks like in the trenches building yeah. these systems and i know like all the safeguards that we're putting in place and i know it's just seems it's not going to be like a like a movie where Peter Parker plugs the wrong plug into the wrong slot and something of no, AGI. I, like that, that, that's just not the way things work. Um, and, and moreover, like <laughs> the, this system, one of the problems I think we have is like, you know, people talk about uh, emergent capabilities and like that sort of freaks people out because they're like, oh, well, you know, like if you couldn't predict the emergent capabilities that came in GPD-4, then like what else might emerge that you uh, that you can't predict? And just because you can't forecast that uh, GPD-4 is a much better joke teller than GPD-3.5, <laughs> uh, like doesn't mean that like you can't put a whole bunch of measures in place to make sure that like just super weird stuff doesn't uh, doesn't happen. I don't find a huge amount of comfort wallowing in uh, like these 
artificial general super intelligence uh, conversations. Because even there, like narrowly speaking, we probably are going to want some forms of super intelligence. Like if you had an agent uh, that you could say like, hey, I want you to go develop a cure for cancer, like a set of compounds that, you know, are mRNA vaccines or whatnot that could cure this range of cancers. And like if the thing could do it, uh, like I think you'd want it to do it. Like some of these conversations are, are like kind of weird yeah. to me. I agree. I, I think um, to your point, I think firing a canon of inexpensive B minus eighth grade writing at almost any business model on the internet is already a calamity. Like it will yeah. already change the world. Like you can just stay focused on that for a minute. Yeah. But it does seem like a lot of people have interpreted the, the ability of generative AI to be convincing as a step. And it seems like what you're saying is it's a step, but it's not even the most important step. Yeah, it's not the most important step. Like it's, some of the scenarios that people are imagining right now, uh, like there's no reason to believe that any of this stuff is inevitable or even likely. There are like a whole bunch of like risks that you can think about. Like if you want to just go wallow in your inner paranoid, let us please go focus on the risks that we already have, like climate change and uh, you know, like what happens with the you know, big demographic changes that are happening in the industrialized world where the population is aging. So like we got a bunch of stuff that's unrolling that are like pretty hard, gnarly problems that like probably deserve far more of our attention than like some futuristic scenario that like <laughs> you have to have many leaps of faith about what is going to happen and intentional uh, like really malign stuff that someone would have to go do to uh, like make some of these things real. When yeah, we got real stuff to think about right now. Let me end here with a silly example, and I, I just want to understand how you reacted to it, and then I want to talk about what's next when all this stuff rolls out. Yeah. So you rolled out Bing with Chat GPT. I was at the event. I got to talk to Sasha Nadella. It was great. We all left. We all got to start playing with it. Kevin Roos, the columnist of the New York Times does a hard work podcast with our friend Casey Newton. Kevin immediately finds himself in a conversation with Bing that uh, can only be described as extremely horny. Like Bing tries to get it on with Kevin Roos. This is an emergent behavior that you had no guardrails against, right? Did you see that coming? So Frank Shaw, who runs uh, runs PR, like Kevin pinged him uh, and said like he was going to write the article. Like I... I got on the phone and I, I chatted with him uh, before he did it. Yeah, and, and like what he did was like a perfectly, we, we hadn't anticipated that anyone was going to sit down inside of a Bing chat session when the when the purpose of Bing is to, you know, answer questions about like planning yeah. your vacation or whatnot, who was going to spend several hours in one continuous <laughs> conversation, like trying to get Bing to like go off the rails. And like that's, what he was uh, doing. To, to and, be fair, Bing, that early version of Bing went off the rails pretty fast. Yeah. So what was happening technically is the way that transformers work is they're just trying to predict the next word. And like you can sort of walk down a path of these predictions where you get to the point when you're asking it for something that's really odd, where the probabilities of all the next possible things are are relatively equal and all very low. So like yeah. nothing is likely. Uh, you're like off in strange territory. And the way Transformers work is it just sort of picks something at random <laughs> uh, 
and it gives you the completion. And, you know, the next thing you know, is like, all right, well, you know, I really love you. You should leave your wife and, uh, you know, let me tell you about my Jungian shadow. Uh, I, by know, the way, and, I'm saying that this is the best marketing that Microsoft could have possibly done for that version of Bing <laughs> is on the front page of the Times be like, yeah. I think you should leave your wife. Like incredible, incredible earn, earn media moment. Yeah. But, although, so this happens, but then you have to have some sort of follow-up meeting, right? Yeah, and the follow-up meeting is like we sort of do what we plan for. We didn't know that that was going to be the thing that <laughs> happened, but we knew that something uh, yeah, yeah. was likely going to pop up that we hadn't anticipated in the testing that we did for the system. And it, like in the testing was like crazy comprehensive. It wasn't a wasn't a big meeting. It was a, sort of a small meeting. It was like, okay, well, like here's clearly what's happened. Uh, like what what do we do? And so like the two things that we did is like we are going to. We, we had a few thousand people who were on the product at that point. Kevin was uh, like way off uh, in terms of number of turns in conversation, <laughs> just like outlier. And so we're like, okay, well, like we're just not going to let people wander down these hallucinatory paths uh, anymore. So like we will limit the number of turns in the conversation, just sort of force periodic resets. And then we did a little bit of tuning in the Metaprompt and we had built an entire validation suite. So like the, the problem usually in doing these sorts of changes is like you make the change to fix the problem that's in front of you and you don't know whether you regress on like all of the things that you fixed before. And so like we just invested in this big evaluation suite. So like, you know, we made the changes, like push the button, ran the evaluation suite, everything was fine. Like we pressed the button and deployed and a few hours later, like nobody could do that anymore. Let me just sort of say something about the earned media. Like on the one hand, like it was a lot of people paying attention to Bing, but yeah. like the bad thing about it was, um, so Kevin did did the awesome thing of publishing the transcript. And so if anybody like went to New York Times and actually took the time to like read the transcript, they'd be like, okay, well, like now I understand why exactly like it got into that state. So it wasn't like it just... You know, he was like looking for like, you know, tell me where the nearest Taco Bell is and like what the specials are. And it was like, oh, dude, leave your wife. Uh, no, it was like. Uh, um, but, but like so many people read that article and just sort of assumed that like there was no safety testing. They didn't even go to Bing themselves afterwards to see if it was still well, doing it. At like, that they, moment, they, it was very hard to do that in that moment. Yeah, it's, it's still um, somewhat hard to use, but it's still only an edge and all this stuff. Yeah, the bad thing was for all of the folks inside of the company who had done all of the safety oh, no. work. There were hundreds of people, and like they they like not only did all the hard work to try to make the system safe and like had jumped on this and like fixed the thing relatively quickly, but like they were also the ones with the networks of the most sensitive people who were reading this article and were like, "What are you?" doing and, and like they just they, they felt terrible that was a the tough thing the fact that you know hey you launch a product and it does something that like was still quite squarely inside of our published transparent uh you know responsible ai standards like it wasn't doing anything safe it just did like a thing that was unsettling uh and like the normal <laughs> way that you you know, you deal with software that has a user interface uh, bug is like you just sort of go fix the bug and apologize to the customer that triggered it. And like this one just happened to be one of the most read stories in New York Times history. Uh, yeah, so it was, it was interesting. I honestly think most software would be better if there was like a one in a hundred chance. It's like, leave your wife. Like, 
Excel. Like, just throw it in there. See what happens. Make the co-pilot, like, a little hornier. I'm saying I'm not well, a great product strategist. It's the best idea I've ever had. And, like, one of the interesting things that happened is as soon as we put the mitigation in, like, there was a Reddit sub-channel called Save <laughs> Sydney. Uh, you know, so, I, I, I mean, like, people were really irritated yeah. at us that like we dialed uh dialed it down they were like yeah that was fun like we like that 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 to me was the biggest learning and like a thing that we you know we were we were kind of expecting is that th- there are absolutely like a set of bright lines uh that you do not want to cross with these systems and you want to be very very sure that you have tested for before you go deploy a product um and then there's some things where it's like huh like, it's interesting that some people are upset about this and some people aren't. And, like, how do I choose, uh, like, which preference mm-hmm. to go meet? Do you think Sydney will ever make a comeback? <laughs> uh, yeah, we've got Sydney uh, swag inside <laughs> of the company. Like, it's, uh, like, very jokey. Uh, and, like, you know, one, one of the things that I'm hoping that we will do uh, at some point in the future is... Bing has uh, like a meta prompt and like the meta prompt is like, you know, call Sydney. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that I hope that we will do just from a personalization perspective in the not too distant future is to like let people have a little chunk of the meta prompt is oh, like their standing instructions for the product. And so like if you want it to be Sydney, like you should be able to tell it to be Sydney. That's fascinating. I could talk to you for another full hour about all of these things. The notion that the very way that we interact with computers is about to be upended by these tools, I think we could just talk about it forever and ever. Sadly, we've got to cut it short. We'll have to have you back on soon. Kevin, thank you so much for joining Decoder. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Kevin Scott for taking the time to chat today. And I'm dead serious, Kevin. An hour on metadata. Pick the time. We're going to do it. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. We read all the emails. You can also hit us up directly. We're at DecoderPod on Twitter and TikTok. TikTok's a lot of fun. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Jackie McDermott and Raghu Manavalan. It was edited by Chris Shirtliff. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters. And our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.